Well, howdy, folks. Welcome to Michael Perry's voicemail, episode number 184. Out the window of my little room above the garage here, I can see my breath most mornings these days, which leads me to recall one of the first times my friend Mary Cutrafello ever showed up to play guitar with my band, The Long Beds. We was hired to do a show on a farm, and the stage was an international straight truck. They decorated the bed with picket fences and straw bales. It was a beautiful autumn day, and our hosts were well-prepared and, and gracious folks. But, man, by the time we hit the stage, the night had turned so cold we could see our breath as we harmonized. And I remember looking over at Mary as she cranked out ripping lead twang on her telly. I think, I think she was playing a telly back then. These days she runs a Gretsch. But I looked over at her playing lead guitar and wondering if she'd ever get her fingers on Frozen and, and if she did, if she'd ever play with us again. She did, and she will. Matter of fact, just this week, we're going to take the stage in Minneapolis together, me and Mary and the other long beds. I never planned on any of this music stuff. I, I never planned to write songs, let alone play them in public. I've told the story a lot of times how I was in my 30s before I learned my first chord, and then how once I learned three chords, three chords, yeah, that's all you need to be dangerous. Once I learned three chords, I started writing songs. But even then, it was just as a way to take a break from writing prose, books and essays and stuff. When I was on a long writing binge, I wanted to take a break, but I didn't want to turn off that whatever part of my brain it was I'd finally gotten rolling. And songwriting was a nice way to do that. Just step across the room, pick up a guitar and work on a song for a little bit and then go back to writing the prose. But there there was also the fact that my earliest literary influences weren't novelists and authors. They were singer-songwriters. Steve Earle, man, when when I heard his early stuff, I came right out of my skin. He He was singing what I was feeling. I don't know... I don't know if you've ever heard the song, It's All Up To You. It, that song confirmed my existentialist leanings long before I even knew there was such a word. Way back when I was blindly and naively stumbling into the idea of writing, guys like Steve Earle and Waylon Jennings, they, they provided me with a subliminal impression that a rough boy from the country could take a shot at the creative arts without having to give up his blue jeans or wiggle his butt. And and when, because of Steve Earle, I heard Towns Van Zant quavering through his songs, and Towns, if you don't know, wrote some huge songs, including the Willie and Merle hit Poncho and Lefty. But when I heard old Towns Van Zant's, I, I, I further got the idea that you could hatch poetry under a seed corn cap as well as a black beret. John Prine, same deal. And so in a strange way, I guess you could say that for me, a, a relatively sheltered Wisconsin farm boy those singer-songwriters, they were my introduction to the liberal arts. Anyways, I started writing songs, and, and then I had about 20 or 30 of them, and my friend Billy Krause found out about them, and he said, you got to play them out. And I said, no, jeepers, no. And he, he just booked us into a coffee shop anyways, and I ain't saying I was nervous, but I cranked out a 60-minute set in 32 minutes flat. But then they asked us back, and the second time there was more people than the first time and then pretty soon we had a bass player and then a lead guitarist and then one day I told my wife well it seems I have a band and and she said that's fine as long as within a year it brings more money in than out 
<laughs> so with that challenge before me, uh, all of a sudden, I guess we've been out there for closing in on a couple of decades. And being in a band has become one of my favorite things. I mean, me writing books and essays and whatnot, that's, that's the first and foremost thing. And I don't forget it. But what a joy it is to work in, in that musical genre, that format. And then even more happily to show up in some funky venue like a gorgeous old opera house or a fancy art center or, or stand on pallets so you don't sink into the mud or, or even an international straight truck in the cold. And, and they're waiting on my friends and we stand on that stage together and make music. And boy, it's hard to beat that. It, it started with Billy. And and Billy's gone now, and there's still a couple of songs where we hit that part where we wove the harmony sweetly as, well, the image I get is that old-fashioned ribbon candy, the phrasing mirror perfect and the colors tight to each other. And we could sing that way even though my back was to him. I couldn't see him because we'd done those songs together a thousand times, and we just knew where our voices were going to go. And, and now Billy's gone, and... <clears throat> you know, we hit those parts and I turn back to where he sat and I miss him so much. But I also feel joy that I was allowed him at all. I mean, to sing with a man like that. Billy was first and, and then there's been a bunch of folks. It's the nature of the business, especially in a band like mine where we're not touring full time, that people come and go and sometimes people got to sub in and out. But I can tell you that in all these years, not one of them has been sent away. I've been blessed with folks solid in both soul and craft. Hmm. I guess this is what happens when you have band members with experience ranging from country music top 40 hits to Dick Dale lipstick pickups to Adler's Bar to Yale to nursing school. I still remember the very first band gig we got where the hotel rooms were paid for by someone other than us. Uh, it was the La Quinta Inn in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. And the bass player, he went outside for a smoke just as I was coming in for the, from the van. So I sat down on the bench beside him just to keep him company. And we were still in the early stages of getting to know each other out of, outside of rehearsal. And he talked slow. Um, not slow, that's the wrong term. He talked deliberately. There's a difference. And later I'd learned that he could turn the act of starting the van into a six-minute slow-motion performance piece. He'd adjust the seatbelt and the mirrors and select a cigarette. And, but but on this particular day at the La Quinta, we were still new, just still getting to know each other. And I'm not well-read, um, or no, I am well-read, but I have poor retention. So I'm at best a witty generalist. I draw from a, a wide but shallow pool. So if you bring up a topic, I can probably click off two or three insidery sounding tidbits that indicate a familiarity and, and understanding, but that all evaporates as soon as someone asks an, ask, an actual question. Anyways, I said something superficially knowledgeable about I don't remember what, and the bass player, he gently blew out his cigarette smoke and staring off into space, he said, yeah. Yeah, and of course, that was in part a result of the incursion of the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've had the guitar player who went from playing the Moose Lips Cafe with me to winning a couple of Grammys. Mary, she went to Yale and performed in Texas roadhouses and on The Tonight Show and drove a FedEx truck. 
I've had a bass player whose name I blanked on during introductions, and he still speaks to me. As a matter of fact, he will be just off my left elbow next weekend. If you ever see us play and you want to know if a band member is new, just wait till I tell a funny story. The person, the new person will be the one laughing out loud. The rest of the band's heard the dead cow story 57 times. And they're, they're pros, so they'll do a solid, silent stage laugh. But the one audibly giggling, that's the new person. To a person, the, the band members surrounding me are pros. Whereas I said before, I know five, six chords and two rhythms. It's my band, I make the calls, but I begin in humility. You doff your cap to pros, and, and then just do the best you can do. Put your dang heart into it. Go ahead and tear up when you're singing that song you wrote for your wife the 327th time. I mean, I know what it is to feel the flash of sweat being horribly out of tune when a song starts. I, m- I remember we were recording a live television show once. We were doing a song of mine that only has two chords, and I st- two chords, and I still managed to pick the wrong one. And I remember thinking, somebody's out of tune. And, and then I turned around to look at, at Billy's fingers on his fretboard, and he's playing D when he should be playing E. And then I realized, no, oops, I'm playing E when I should be playing D. <laughs> but rather than panic, it's just an easy smile, and you ease on over to D, and 97% of your audience will never even know. And that, that's, that's when I love the band the most. Not, not when they play their amazing licks, which, which they do, or sing harmony tight as shrink wrap, and they do that too. But when they cradle me in their talent, they, they build this flowing thing around me that allows me to waller around and land safely until we're all back in the same boat. I've, I've joked for a long time that our band shouldn't be called the long beds. It should be called the bowling bumpers. Because that's what you got. Me, I'm the clumsy one rolling into that song like a kid two-handed in a bowling ball and rolls slowly off course, then slow-mo ricochets off the bumper and back the other way and meanders to the other side and so on until somewhere at the end there we hit the end of the song and I knock down two or three pins and everyone's just so happy for me they clap and sing like, you did it. (laughs) But instead we're the long beds. Uh, named after my 1951 L123 quarter ton International Harvester long bed pickup truck. People are forever misspelling the band name as one word. They, they call us the long beds. We put it in the contract rider. We put it in the promotional reminders. We put it in our press materials. But sometimes the universe presses the truth into you over and over, especially when you get messages from fans saying yours is their favorite music, even as they misspell your name. Lesson learned. But... It's too late to reprint the t-shirts. The humblings are all part of the fun. Way, way back when it was just, I think, me and Billy and Chuck, the bass player, and maybe my friend Ben subbing in on bongos, we showed up to play a few sets at a place called the Acoustic Cafe, which, by the way, is the most inaptly named venue ever. And we found the place packed wall to wall, and hopes were high that this would be our big break. See you later, losers. But... As we're setting up, I slowly realized the audience was all teenage girls, and they were here to see the band before us, this group of sweetly mopey young fellows who sang their sweetly mopey songs and, upon leaving the stage, took the packed house with them. (laughs) 
So it goes, we played on. And a few days from now, we're going to roll over to Minneapolis in the van, haul in our gear, set up. And man, just talking about it, I get eager. Thinking of my friends up there with me, that that part where I turn to them on the solos and the bridges and, and just grin and strum while they do what they do so well. And I heard the ticket pre-sales are way up for this one. And I just can't wait to let her rip. Lucky me, a pro's typer allowed to slide over into the music lane now and then. So now, if you'll excuse me, uh, I'm going to go practice. I'm going to practice, but but I'm not going to say goodbye. Oh, and P.S., this week's marginalia is all long beds related. Kind of stretching the definition of marginalia, but I think it'll work for one episode. Anyways, as I always say, not going to say goodbye. Just going to say what they always say up there where I'm from. Well... I suppose, forward.